0: Let's pray. Father, what a delight it is for us now to come to your word and to consider the great riches that we have in Christ Jesus and what you have rescued us from. I pray, Father, that this message from Hebrews 12 would accomplish what you have sent it for. And that it would be true to the author's intent, Father, that you would not only protect us from error, but you would reveal within us whatever it is that needs to change in the way that we think, in the way that we behave, yes, but also in how we feel about you and about your plan and about your workings in our lives and what Jesus has accomplished by his redemptive act as our high priest, and as our perfect sacrifice. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would so move us to hit the mark of our hearts and change us for Jesus' sake. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are back in Hebrews 12 this morning. And so I would have you turn there, beginning with verse 18. We'll not read it just yet. The reason the Bible has... Both an Old and New Testament is because the message of the Bible consists of both an Old and New Covenant. We have an Old and New Testament because two major themes of the Bible revolve around Old Covenant and New Covenant. The Old Covenant was established by God, as you know, through Moses on the mountain after rescuing his people From Egypt, it was a covenant that consisted of commandments and laws, priests and sacrifices, incense and altars, festivals and Sabbath days. It was a covenant of symbols and imagery and ceremony. A covenant whose terms consisted of two promises. And those promises were these. If you obey me, I will bless you abundantly. But if you disobey me, promise number two, I will curse you. You, I will curse you. The new covenant, however, is very, very different. God established it through Jesus Christ, not on a mountain, but on a hill with a cross. It is a covenant that consists not of commandments and laws and incense and altars and symbols and imagery. It is not a covenant of shadows, but of real eternal substance. Everything the Old Covenant symbolized has found fulfillment in the New Covenant through Jesus Christ by two means. By two means. First, an eternal high priesthood. And second, through a once-for-all sacrifice. A once-for-all sacrifice. Then the terms of this covenant consist of One promise. And you can say it in many different ways. I chose the vocabulary of Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. Namely that Christ our eternal high priest is able to save forever all who draw near to God through him. That's the promise. That Lord Jesus Christ... Our eternal high priest is able to save forever all who draw near to God through him. And the implication here is there isn't any other way to draw near to God. Try any other way of drawing near to God and you will fail. You may not, you cannot, it is not permitted that you draw near to God by any way other than through Christ. The question the author of the Hebrews is is asking his readers then is this. Will you cling to the shadows of the old covenant and be condemned by its law? Or will you cling to Christ and enter into eternal fellowship with God by grace? Let me say it again. Will you cling to the shadows of the Old Covenant and be condemned by its law? Or will you cling to Christ and enter into fellowship with God by grace? That's the question. That's the question that every religious unbeliever needs to answer. The verses for this week and next form the climax of the whole epistle to the Hebrews. Not only the climax, but the conclusion. This is it, folks. Next week, by God's grace, we will be done the doctrinal section of the book of Hebrews, which started with verse 1 of chapter 1 and will end with verse 29 of chapter 12. And then chapter 12 is all practical, but as was the case with the apostles most of the time, they spent the majority of their time on doctrine to undergird, and to teach, and to strengthen, and to explain, and then gave us practice that fits on top of it perfectly. But these verses, for the rest of this chapter, form the climax and the conclusion of the whole epistle to the Hebrews. Its doctrine and its exhortation Climax and conclude here. The goal of the author has been to induce the readers to abandon any hope in the old covenant and to cast themselves completely upon the new covenant mercies of God in Christ. All along he's been comparing the old covenant which came through Moses with the new covenant that has come through Christ. And so he writes. Chapter 1. Christ is a more excellent revelation than the prophets of the Old Covenant. And he is more excellent than the angels who helped establish it. Chapter 2, Christ became a man in order to become a more excellent high priest than those of the Old Covenant. Chapter 3, Christ's glory is more excellent than Moses, the mediator of the Old Covenant. Chapter 4, Christ brought a more excellent promise of rest Than the promised land of the old covenant chapters five through seven Christ established a more excellent priesthood fashioned after Melchizedek rather than Aaron of the old covenant chapters eight and nine Christ became the mediator of a better covenant with more excellent promises than the promises of the old covenant. Chapter 10, Christ offered a more excellent sacrifice than all of the old covenant sacrifices put together. And chapter 11, Christ offers a more excellent reward than that of any of the rewards that could be given by the old covenant. And so the entire message has been a call to religious unbelievers in the church who love their religion but have not fully come to Christ to abandon all hope in works-based, ceremony-saturated religion and embrace the Savior without reservation. And to that end, he gives four warnings. If you choose to reject this Christ, beware. Hebrews 4.1 Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to come short of it. Chapter 6, verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Warning number three, Hebrews ten twenty-eight. Anyone who is set aside... The law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who is trampled underfoot the son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace for we know him who said vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then warning number four, which we will come to next week. Hebrews twenty five. I'm sorry, Hebrews twelve, twenty-five and twenty nine. He says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. For our God is a consuming fire. This is the way evangelism is done, beloved. Don't give me any of that business about I don't want to hear anything about the wrath of God there is no wrath of God, there's no need for a gospel. There's no need for a Christ. There's no need for a cross. We don't need to be saved. If there is the wrath of God, if there is eternal punishment, then, oh, God, be merciful to me, however you please. And God says, I give you my son. Receive him. There is no other way to satisfy the demands of my holy law. The problem was, these beloved Jewish professing Christians, it was a church, that's why reading the book of Hebrews is complicated, because it's not only warning the unbelievers and pleading with them to come to Christ. He's also exhorting and trying to encourage those who already know the Savior to worship Him and be faithful to Him and to serve Him in joy and all those things because in every church there is always that mix of believer and unbeliever. But his his special concern is for those who are in the body who were there for some other reason than coming to God on His terms and who are perhaps tempted to go back to the old system of ceremony and sacrifice and religion and law. And so he lays out these four warnings. So much for one size fits all American oprified Christianity. There's only one way to gain access with God. We must come through Christ and by and by the infinite kindness of god he not only demands that we come to him through christ he actually by his mercies invites us into his presence into the presence of his glory with great joy we memorized last week from jude into his presence with great joy he invites us through Christ, listen to this, Hebrews 4.16, Therefore, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Hebrews 6.18, God wants us to have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. Hebrews 7, 19, Christ is responsible for bringing a better hope through which we draw near to God. Chapter 7, verse 25, therefore, he is able to save forever those who what? Draw near to God through him. And chapter 10, verse 19, we now have confidence to enter the holy place. By the blood of Jesus. Let me just insert into your memory. When Jesus died, what happened to the veil that separated the outer court from the inner court? It was torn in two. We now have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for for us through the veil, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us... Draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Oh, beloved, do you understand the significance of those invitations to these people who would have received it for the first time? No one living under the old covenant had any illusion that they would ever be invited into the presence of God. He was absolutely transcendent. Which means he was absolutely inaccessible. That's a key term in this text. He was absolutely inaccessible. You did not have access to God anyway, by any means, except vicariously through one priest, the high priest. In fact, the entire system of worship that God created was designed to communicate transcendence and inaccessibility. You may not come near my throne. We need merely to be reminded how when God led them out of Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai, he struck them with terrifying fear of his presence. And he did that intentionally. Now we come to the text. Notice in the first few verses of our text this morning, if you're taking notes, here we go. The terror of God's old covenant presence. The terror of God's old covenant presence. Beginning with verse 18. After saying all of those things, the invitations, the warnings, the pleading, He says this, for you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that. Those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them, for they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it should be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses himself said, I am full of fear and trembling. Is that what you want? Is that really what you want? That's what he's saying. Do you really want that? This is what Israel experienced at Mount Sinai when God met them to establish the Old Covenant. This is where the Ten Commandments were given. Mount Sinai is a real physical mountain that could be touched. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, he says. This is not what Christ offers you. He doesn't offer you a geographical location. When God descended upon it, the peak of the mountain burst into a fury of flame. Today there is a site that some believe is the real Mount Sinai, not where most of our Bible atlases have it, but in Arabia, where the scriptures say it is, And there is a website where you can go and actually see this place. And one of the amazing things, one of the several amazing things, is that the top of this mountain, being made of granite, is completely black and melted. And yet, it's not magma, it's not lava, it's not hardened um, rock from the center of the earth. It's just granite. Can you even begin to imagine the kind of heat that it would take to melt granite? And yet the mountain is completely blackened on top. In fact, most scholars looking at that mountain, it's unusual. It's kind of sitting out by itself. It looks like all the other mountains except that one is completely black on top. And it looks like lava from a distance. And yet when you go up and you start chipping away, just below the surface... Just below the veneer, it's apparent it's granite. What kind of heat would it take to melt granite, to burn it, so that even in today, in 2008, it'd still be there burnt? Except for the fire, in verse 18, the mountain was cast into thick darkness and gloom. This was not a happy thing. This was not something where even if you were charismatic, you would be jumping up and down. No, you would be falling on your face in fear. It's interesting when I started studying this, it was about three weeks ago, and I ran into whirlwind. Verse 18 says, Cannot be touched on the fire, uh, blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind. You know what the word whirlwind, whirlwind actually means? I thought it would be tornado. No, hurricane, hurricane. And so imagine fire, smoke, darkness and gloom and this incredible wind, this incredible wind was terrifying them. It was a terrible wind and the people below could hear. The sound of great trumpet blasts and the voice of God, which was so overwhelming, they begged Moses to tell God to stop speaking to us. We can't bear to hear your voice. And what was he saying? He was warning them, you better not try to come near me. You better keep your distance. I am God. God. And you cannot just prance in here in a cavalier way and expect that I'm just going to receive you. Our God is a consuming fire. And you will burn. And what was he saying? It's better not attempt, not to attempt to come close. And if you do, God's law says that you must be struck dead. And you have a choice. Stoning? Or arrow. And so terrifying was the experience that even Moses confessed in verse 21. I am full of fear. I am full of fear. The difference between them and the people, God was telling Moses, come up. Come up. Talk about full of fear. And trembling. You see what the author of Hebrews is saying? Is that what you want? You want to go back to that? You want that God to be your God? I mean, yes, it's the same God, but do you want to relate to him on those terms based upon his law? I mean, talk about inaccessible. Not only was God not inviting them to come near, they would have preferred death over the prospect of drawing close to such a consuming fire. But this is what the old covenant had to offer. People were never able to have access to God, only the high priest on the celebration of Yom Kippur. Once a year, the Day of Atonement, the high priest could enter the most holy place to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, which is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and sprinkle blood there on behalf of the people and get out of that Holy of Holies as fast as possible. In fact, it's been said that the reason that there were bells put on the high priest's garment And tradition says a rope around his ankle was so that if he went in there and God was not pleased because of some unconfessed sin perhaps and struck him dead, there would be a way to get him out. Because he was the only one allowed in. There were no first responders. There was nobody else allowed to go in there. He was completely inaccessible. And this is the way it is all the way through Israel's history. God was obviously there, but he was personally inaccessible because there was no means by which an unholy people could be made truly holy in his sight. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord. No one can come in. And so he remained inaccessible. They could worship him. They could make sacrifices to him. They could give of their money and their service, their labor. God gifted them. I just finished reading the book of Exodus, and he gifted certain men with very hands-on skills in terms of building things and artists who would make, for instance, the veil and the curtains and all of that, and the musicians and, and those who would beat gold and hammer it into the shape of um, Uh, the goblets and the shovels and all of the things that they needed, uh, architects, everything, God gave them those gifts to perform those wondrous acts in the service of his worship, and yet they could never come near to him. He was always beyond, always transcendent, always inaccessible. And so the Old Covenant, with all of its commandments and laws, priests and sacrifices, incense and altars, festivals and Sabbath days, symbols and ceremonies, could do nothing to bring the people into the glorious presence of God. That's what he has been establishing all the way through this book. That's why I turn back to chapter 10, verse 1. And he says this, For the law... Old Covenant, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Now you remember our study of the term make perfect. Teleao, sometimes teleosis, depending on how it's being used To make perfect means to bring to the desired end or to accomplish the desired objective. And So when God talks about, at least in this context, making perfect, and you see that phrase throughout, we'll see it again in our text. He's talking about bringing his people to the desired end or accomplishing the desired goal by them. And what was God's desired objective? Well, again, Hebrews 2 verse 10 says it was to bring many sons to glory. It was to bring many people into the glorious presence of God. How is that possible? No one, can ex- no one can enter into God's presence. He is inaccessible. And yet God's goal was to bring man to himself, that they would draw near. And so he was seeking to accomplish the salvation of many people. And so he is saying in chapter 10, Verse 1 That since the old covenant consisted only of shadows of a future reality, namely Christ, it could never turn sinners into sons. It was designed by God merely to expose sin and to provoke men to cry out for mercy and grace from God, which He would eventually give in the person of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The old system of symbols and ceremonies and perpetual sacrifices had no power to purify the sinner and to bring him into fellowship with God. That is not what it was designed for. And so when you ask someone, how do you hope to get to heaven? And they say, well, I've kept the law. No, you haven't. And even if you could, starting today, keep it for the rest of your life, it would be insufficient because you were already a sinner. You've already corrupted what God requires. Perfect holiness. And so God remains inaccessible to you. And the Old Testament had no power to change that. All it could do was reveal it again and again and again. Every time they made a a sacrifice, the law declared, you are condemned, but I temporarily accept the death of this animal instead. You are condemned for your sin, but I temporarily accept the death of this animal instead. It does not wash clean, it can only cover. You are condemned. You must cry out for mercy and grace, but you will not receive it until God's man comes. Now, let me just say, as a bit of an aside, address listeners to this message right now who may be our Roman Catholic friends and family. In this generation, God has been especially kind to preserve the book of Hebrews. I think especially for you. I understand that this may be difficult for you to hear just now, but because I love you, and because God loves you, I must tell you, That the Roman Catholic system of relating to God is just as ineffective at bringing many sons to glory as the old covenant ever was. I say that because Roman Catholicism is inextricably linked and modeled after the old covenant. Let me see if I can demonstrate that for you. I don't want this just to be an arrogant opinion of mine, but rather a solid Objective truth for you to wrestle with. Have you ever wondered why the Pope and the bishops wear those ornate costumes? It's because Aaron and the priests of the old covenant wore special robes and headdresses. Have you ever wondered why the Mass is performed every day? It's because under the old covenant, bulls and goats and sheep were sacrificed in the temple every day to cover sin. Have you ever wondered why the Roman, uh, why the Roman Catholic Church on, on the cross, it has the suffering Savior still nailed to it? You call it the crucifix? It's because in the old covenant system there could be no end to the sacrifices because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And so he must be sacrificed every day, every day, every day because that's the pattern of the old covenant. Have you ever considered why incense is so often used in Roman Catholic services? It's because burning incense was an important aspect of the old covenant ritual. Have you ever considered why St. Peter's and other Roman Catholic buildings in Rome are adorned with such a phenomenal amount of gold? It's because the Old Testament temple was adorned with almost unimaginable amounts of gold. It is the pattern. Have you ever considered the roots of the Roman Catholic priesthood? The priestly system is rooted and grounded in the Old Covenant system. In fact, all of the rites, rituals, and ceremonies of the Roman Catholic Church find their origin in the Old Covenant. The Pope himself has boldly and unashamedly stated the fact in his mind and in the teaching of the Catholic tradition that they have inherited, he has inherited his office, not only from St. Peter, but listen, from Aaron. Aaron, the first priest of what? The old covenant. Oh, my friend, God intends to say to you this morning exactly what he has said to the religious Jews who were the first to receive this letter. In chapter 10, verse 1, namely, that since that system... Has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, it can never, by the same sacrifice of the mass which they offer continually year by year, perfect those who draw near. Which is to say, it has no power to bring many sons to glory. It doesn't have any power to bring even one son to glory. Furthermore, all who cling to that system as a means of being reconciled to God will in the end be lost. Lost. Eternally lost. Beloved, do not think that Catholicism and Christianity are the same thing. They are no more the same thing than Christianity and Judaism are the same thing. And those whom we love, we must not shy away from pleading with them to turn from the mountain of Sinai upon which they worship and come to Christ who is the high priest forever and who by his one and only forever sacrifice has satisfied God on behalf of his people. That is the only means of salvation, and it is freely offered and freely received. and so to cling to the old covenant system now that Christ has come is the same as choosing Mount Sinai over Mount Zion and that's why the, uh, uh, that's why the author argues here first he shows the terror of God's old covenant presence, and now he reveals the reward. Of God's new covenant presence. Pick up with verse twenty-two. Hebrews eleven. But you have come to Mount Zion, and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the myriads of angels, and the great assembly, and the church of the firstborn. Who are enrolled in heaven. And to God the judge of all. And to the spirits of righteous men made what? Perfect. And to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. To leave the old covenant system in favor of Christ is like turning from the terror of Sinai to the joys of heaven. And notice the seven glories of the new covenant. In Christ we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We have come to Mount Zion. When David was the king of Israel, he captured the Jebusite stronghold situated on Mount Zion. He brought the Ark of the Covenant to it, which represented the presence of God. When Solomon built the temple there, Zion became synonymous with the earthly dwelling place of God. Hence the imagery. You have not come to Sinai. You have come to Zion, where God lives through Christ. In Christ, we have not come to Sinai. We have become citizens of the city of God in heaven. We, like the Old Testament saints the author referred to in chapter 11, are looking for a city that is to come. A, A city whose foundation and builder is God. But in another sense, we have the privilege of living there now because Christ has purchased for us direct access into God's presence. We no longer have a need for human priests. We have Christ, our eternal high priest. Oh, just read the book of Hebrews and let God say it himself. And secondly, in Christ we have come to myriads of angels in joyful assembly. Verses 22 and 23. Myriads means thousands upon thousands. Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 33 that the giving of the law was attended by myriads of holy ones. And some speculate that the trumpet calls that terrified the people coming off the mountain were actually Trumpet-bearing or shofar-bearing angels who were blowing and making this horrific noise. If you've ever heard the blowing of a shofar, it's not a pretty thing. It's scary you put a bunch of them together. Daniel tells us that when he saw the Lord, the Lord was accompanied by thousands upon thousands who were attending him. In Daniel 7 And the term general assembly there in verse 23 is not referring to the church. We know that because general assembly actually means a gathering for public festival or celebration. And so it's better, rather than referring to the church in the next line, rather to the angels in the previous line who joyfully serve and celebrate God in His presence forever. We have come to Mount Zion To the spiritual city of God where the angels are. Last night, I was finishing up reading Pilgrim's Progress to the kids. Didn't quite get there. But we read the part where Pilgrim and Hopeful came to the river, the river representing death. And angels came to meet them and joyfully talked to them at the end of their life, at the end of their journey, about the glories of heaven. And they could see it over the river. But the angels said, Ah, yes, but you have to cross the river first. And it was terrifying. But the angels explained that as you cross the river, whatever your faith is will be reflected in the depth of the river. And so if your faith is strong, the river will seem shallow. And if your faith is weak, the river will seem deep. And they crossed the river and Christian felt as if he would surely drown in the currents that were drawing him under. But hopeful grabbed his hand and encouraged him. In faith to continue and on the other side waiting waist deep were the angels of God waiting to receive them and to bring them into the eternal glories. And John Bunyan agonizes over words to describe what they saw when they reached the other side and ten thousands of the angels all of whom were eager to serve God's people and longed to be one who was chosen to come and serve you, or to serve you, to serve you. We have entered the church of the firstborn. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. But with that, we have entered into the joyful assembly of a myriad of angels. And they are here with us today, worshiping our sovereign and glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus. What a privilege! And how much better is that than Mount Sinai, where there is nothing but fear and dread and awe. On Sinai, there was a myriad of angels, but the people were not able to join them. We, however, worship the Lord and serve Him in the presence of the angels. They are ministering spirits sent to those who will inherit salvation, the author said in Hebrews 1.14. We cannot see them yet, but they are here serving and worshiping with us all the time. Number three, in Christ. We have come to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Verse 23. Jesus is referred to here as the firstborn, or the son who holds the highest rank, the one who inherits all that the Father owns. That's the meaning of firstborn. protatocas. It was a title, it wasn't just a casual designation. He was He was the first, he's the second, he's the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. No. Firstborn had a legal designation. This is the one who earns or who has uh, inherited by right of the firstborn. He is the heir of all that the Father possesses. By abandoning Sinai's law and coming to Zion's grace, we have our names inscribed in the heavenly roll books as fellow heirs with the firstborn. We are co-heirs with Christ. We become members of His precious bride, whom He loves and leads and serves. And we are members of His church forever. We have left Sinai. and We have come to His church. Number four, in Christ we have also come to God, the judge of all. What's the significance of that? We've come to Him. The implication is, as He's been saying all along, He has welcomed us. The veil has been torn away by Jesus' death. The Holy of Holies is now accessible. The Ark of the Covenant, as it were, stands out in the open for everybody to approach. We approach the mercy seat with confidence, not arrogance, but confidence. We approach God now no longer as if approaching a judge, but rather as approaching a father. The perfect father who never errs, never sins, never tolerates sin, but loves us more deeply than we could ever imagine. We've come to him. We have come to God the Judge. In Christ, God the Judge has become our Father. We have been adopted into His family. We no longer approach Him with fear any longer, but in reverent love and inexpressible joy. To approach the God of Sinai was to lose one's life. To approach the God of Zion is to find it for the first time. Number five, in Christ we have come to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. To come to Zion is to join a family whose roots go all the way back to righteous Abel. All the Old Testament saints who we learned about in Hebrews chapter 11 are there. The saints who have gone before us. And all those men and women of the Old Testament that we have loved and admired and, and learned about all the way from back in Sunday school all our lives and to wait They had to wait. We learned that, did we not? They had to wait to receive the privilege that we have already been given. We have already received. They had to wait for Christ. But as chapter 11, verse 40 says, that only together with us they would be made perfect. And when were we made perfect? We were made perfect in God's eyes on the day Jesus died. The price was paid once for all. There's no need for continued sacrifices. There's no need for continued mass. It's been done once for all. The old covenant can make no one perfect. It did not have the power to bring many sons to glory. But what the law could not do, Christ did for us on the cross. And now we are fellow members of God's family with the spirits of righteous men made perfect. And number six, coming to Zion also means that we come, verse 24, to the best thing of all, to Jesus, the mediator of this new covenant. The angels will take us from the river and help us up the hill and walk us through the pearly gates into the very throne room of God and present us to a smiling Savior. Significant that the author uses Christ's human name here. Because as the author has said all along, he had to become a man in order to do the things that would bring us peace with God. As great as Moses was, as the mediator of the old covenant, he trembled in the presence of God. But Jesus, being God in flesh, is able to draw us near to God with himself without fear because he is the mediator of this new covenant. He is the redeemer who is the mediator who is the ransom. And finally, coming to Mount Zion means coming to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. And this is a reference back to the sprinkled blood of the old covenant compared to the sprinkled blood of Christ, as it were, in the true tabernacle of God in heaven, where the blood of his cross was sprinkled upon God's throne. Indicating we have been forgiven. No amount of sacrificed animals could bring us redemption. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. The only blood that would be sufficient to bring peace between sinful men and holy God was the blood of the perfect man, Jesus. I hope you're not ashamed of that name. I hope you're not ashamed of that name. I hope you don't finish your prayers every time by saying, for it's in His name that we pray. Say it. Don't just call Him Christ. Don't just call Him Lord. Say His name. Don't be ashamed of it. It's Jesus. It is Jehovah saves. He is our mediator. And He has a name. He is Jesus. It was Jesus' blood. It was Jesus' blood. It was not just second person of the Trinity. It was the man, Jesus' blood. It was infinitely more valuable than all the blood that came from all of the sacrifices that were ever given. It alone can bring forgiveness. The blood of Abel. We've got the blood here speaking, right? It says to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, verse 24, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks. It speaks. It's blood that speaks. And what does the blood say? The blood of Abel. You know what the blood of Abel said? It said, revenge God who will avenge me. God, an injustice has been done. Who will avenge my blood? God told Cain, your brother's blood is calling out from the ground. But the blood of Jesus cries out too. And it says, forgive them, God. Forgive them. You have crushed me for their sake. Forgive them and make them forgiving. In his place, in my place, condemned, he stood. For what reason? So that I, in Christ, by his blood, would be forgiven. So his blood cries out, today, God, forgive me. How do we take advantage of this? We have got to break away from Sinai. We've got to break away from any religious system that is sacrificial, ceremonial, typical, symbolic, and lacking the substance that God has provided us in Christ. You cannot have Sinai and Zion. You must choose. You must choose. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. You must choose between the two. You cannot have both. And the only question left is, which will you choose? There are only two options. You can come to God at Sinai and meet Him as the holy judge who must pass eternal judgment upon your sins, or you can come to God at Zion and meet Him the gracious Father whose only Son satisfied all the demands of the old covenant by His priestly, righteous life and all perfection. His perfectly high priestly life and His substitutionary death. But beware. If you choose Sinai, verse 25, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. So which will it be? The mountain of fire or the city of joy? There are no other options. Let's pray. Father, you didn't have to give us a book to reveal yourself. You didn't have to give us a book to reveal the dangers of making our own religion and trying to come to you by it. And in doing so, we remake God, not as he is, but as we would have him be. No, Father, I know that there are those hearing my voice right now, either because they're sitting here or they're in some other place, perhaps a different country or a different hemisphere. your need to break with Sinai completely. And there are some who will hear this message and perhaps say, if I break with Sinai, it will mean Great harm to me. And yet you must choose. Father, I pray that you'd be gracious to them and so fill them with a spirit of desire for what you have given us in Christ. That we would be willing to suffer any loss to have him. To be owned by him. Oh, Father, do this great work. And make us who know you more passionate and deeper in our worship. And more humble in the way we relate to you and to one another. Oh, Father, humble us. And show us afresh how desperately needy we were. And how you have filled that need, not through us, but through Christ. To his great and eternal glory to the great and eternal glory of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and for our own great and eternal joy in his presence forevermore. Amen.